Let us remain standing at this time and turn in God's word this morning to the book of Philippians. Our text this morning is Philippians chapter 4, verses 21 to 23. Put your finger right there at the close of Philippians and turn over two pages, maybe three, to Philippians chapter 1. I'd like for us to start by reading Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, and then we're going to read the final three verses of the whole letter. People of God, this is the word of our God. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now Philippians 4, verse 21. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, but especially those who are of Caesar's household. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Ascends the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Our God and Father, we come before you this morning, and we just give you thanks for your special revelation. Thank you that you have communicated to us in human language. You've condescended to use baby talk, as it were. To speak in such a way that we can understand what it is that you're communicating to us. Father, it's our desire to be affected by your word, not just in word only. We want to be affected by the power of your spirit as you apply this word to our hearts that so desperately need to hear a word from above. O Father, illumine our hearts and minds this day to this text of Scripture for the glory of your great name and for the benefit, the welfare of we, your people, who love you. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. When reading an epistle, it is sometimes tempting to just pass through the introductory verses of the letter, to get into the heart, the meat, the body of the letter. It sometimes is tempting to pass over the final words or the final closing greeting of a letter. Again, seeing it as something that's not really part of the body or the meat of the letter. In fact, we might be tempted to pass over the introductory verses and the closing verses of one of Paul's letters in the same way that you and I, when we're looking at a letter that someone sends us in the mail this week, we probably do not ponder too long the salutation of that letter. Dear such and such. We probably don't ponder too long the closing of that letter. Sincerely or in high regards. I know that I am often guilty of allowing the final greeting of an epistle to pass me by without much thought. It seems sometimes simply to be just the final closing of kind of personal greetings that Paul has for individuals. That Well, that's really just kind of Paul talking to people that he knows and 
It doesn't really have much impact upon me, even though it's the inspired word of God. Well, sometimes he is addressing specific individuals in that church. So what real profit is there in examining the opening words or the final greeting or the closing words of one of Paul's letters? Should we examine it too closely? Wouldn't it be just as unnecessary to examine too closely the closing out of his letter as it would be kind of overkill and unnecessary to give too much attention to a salutation or a sincerely at the end of a letter? Well, brethren, there is much profit for our souls to give a close examination of the way the apostle closes out an epistle even this one in Philippians. And we should be mindful that every word of the epistle is inspired by the Holy Spirit and is profitable to God's people. In the case of the one before us in this letter to the church at Philippi, we find that the apostle chooses to end off this epistle with four greetings, four closing greetings, before he ends the whole epistle off with an apostolic benediction. Now, two of these greetings are found in verse 21. Two of these greetings are found in verse 22. Let's just look at them very briefly. First, there's a greeting from Paul himself to the Philippians. Greet every saint. That's from me, Paul. The second one in verse 21, there's a greeting from those who are with Paul. To the church of Philippi. The brothers who are with me greet you. So there's a greeting coming from Paul. There's a greeting coming from those that are with Paul. And then thirdly, as you move into verse 22, there's a greeting from the whole congregation of Christians at Rome where he says, all the saints greet you. And then fourthly, the fourth greeting that's found there in verse 22, is there's a greeting coming from believers specifically who are found in Caesar's household. He says there in verse 22, he says, but especially those who are of Caesar's household. And then Paul proceeds to finalize his letter with an apostolic benediction saying, you know, blessings or the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. Interestingly, he started this whole letter in the same fashion, did he not? Well, there's two things that I think we can briefly highlight here this morning that comes from just these final verses of this letter. And the first thing that is to be highlighted is the communion of saints. The second thing to be highlighted is the broadness of God's saving purposes. And brothers and sisters, Paul is teaching us something this morning about those two things. He is teaching us something about the communion of saints and the broadness of his saving purposes. So let's look at those together. First, the communion of saints. We have Paul's greeting, right? His personal greeting. And notice that when Paul gives his own greeting to the church, he puts it in a particular way. He could have said, I greet you all, couldn't he have? He could have said, please greet the whole congregation for me, would you? He could have written that, but he didn't write it that way. He puts it this way. Greet every 
single saint in Christ Jesus. In other words, the Apostle Paul is wanting to extend his personal greetings to every individual personally. So he's not simply greeting the whole congregation. He's sending his greetings to those individual members of that congregation. He's greeting them every saint, you see. The ministry of Paul to the church and even his ministry among fellow believers is one that is very, very personal. There isn't just a thanks for the collective. There is not a ministry to the collective. There's not just an interest in the collective, though certainly Paul has an interest in the collective of that church. But notice how he words it. There is a greeting or an interest, a ministry to each individual within that congregation. You know, I wonder how many people in that congregation that Paul knew by name, they knew by name, When he sends his greeting, he's not just sending it to the collective of the congregation. He has a personal relationship with the individuals. He is extending his greeting to the individuals of that congregation. And he considers all of them saints without exception. All of them are saints. They're consecrated ones, right? Now, a lot of times in southern Louisiana, when you hear the word saint, You're talking about a specific person within a certain religious tradition that has certain qualifications in order to be called a saint. What's interesting is that holy is absent from God's word. The word of God calls the entirety of the congregation of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ saints. They are consecrated ones, not because of themselves and not even because of Paul. Notice he says, you're saints in Jesus Christ. They're consecrated By the name of the Messiah, sanctified by the blood of the covenant. There's potency and there's intimacy when Paul gives his personal greeting to every saint in Christ Jesus. And you notice that he opens in verse 1 of chapter 1. He says, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Jesus Christ. His letter is addressed to each and every one of them, and he's extending his personal greeting to each and every one of them. Young and old, rich and poor, immature in the faith, mature in the faith. Yea, every single one of them. It's a personal ministry with an interest in the personal welfare of each individual. He greets them as an apostle with a love for each and every one of them. There's communion, you see, that he shares personally with each of them. But now we move on to the brothers that are with him. He extends his greeting from those brothers. He says, the brethren who are with me also greet you. Now back in Philippians chapter 1, Paul will actually indicate that he hopes to send them Timothy soon. There is no one like him 
who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. The apostle held Timothy in very high esteem, though he was young. But he also said there are those who seek their own interests as well. There are many Christians in Rome with Paul who were not cooperating with him in the gospel ministry. They were not Timothys to him. In fact, some of them, in some ways, he was isolated from this church. And yet here Paul brings greetings from the brothers who are with him. Even though there were some who were not cooperating with Paul, Paul always had a Timothy. He always had an Epaphroditus. And there were others as well who were faithful to him in every step of the way of his ministry. And so he says to the brothers at Philippi, he says, I bring you greetings from all of those who are in partnership in the gospel with me to you. It's not just me that is interested in you and your welfare and and love you, but those who are with me also. Then Paul goes further to say that not only myself or these brothers who are with me, who are faithful servants in Christ Jesus, bring you greetings, but also all the saints at the church at Rome bring you greetings. He says, all the saints greet you. So just as Paul calls those in the church at Philippi saints... Watch this. He's calling them saints. He's also giving them greetings from other saints to these saints. From one congregation of saints to another congregation of saints. There is a church-wide message of greeting from one congregation to another congregation. Now let's just stop and step back a moment and consider all of this. Paul is modeling for us again here an important aspect of the Christian life. And he is extending greetings not only from himself and his fellow laborers, but also the whole congregation of Rome. And that important aspect of the Christian life that he is drawing our attention to and drawing their attention to when he wrote this letter is to that element of the communion of saints. He's teaching us that. He's teaching them that when he brings them this greeting from another congregation. He wants them to think as a congregation in union with other congregations. He wants them to think Christianly about this matter. That is, he wants us to be concerned for the whole of our congregation He wants us to think in terms of our relationship with other congregations. And he wants us to think about the things which uniquely unite us in fraternal bonds with one another as well. There is some kind of bond that one congregation has with another. And it has everything to do with what they are united by. Now there's all kinds of things that unite a society of people. You even have that with the Rotary Club. There's all kinds of things that unite people. This may be their language. That unites people in a society. It might be their accent. It might be their common social interests. It might be their socioeconomic status. It might be their occupations. It might be a whole host of things that unites people. There are many things that are common about those that are right here in this room. And those things may not have anything whatsoever to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
But what unites the saints across the map has nothing to do with all of those socioeconomic and ethnic elements. What unites the saints across the map is their common commitment to the special revelation from heaven that's found in Holy Scripture that reveals to us the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why we find Jesus Christ appended to each of these statements, both at the beginning of the letter and at the end. What Paul is doing here is he's demonstrating to us and to them how we ought to think Christianly and how we ought to think as a congregation united to other congregations and united to other mission works and church planting works. There's a communion that we share. This is how we ought to think about our missionaries and our church planters who are laboring for the gospel's sake to reach those who are unreached. And that relationship ought to be close. There ought to be a familiarity between the congregation and those who are laboring in the field as co-laborers. We ought to know who is laboring and know how they're laboring as we pray for them in their labor. They ought to know that we care about them. We ought to know what's going on in their lives to an extent that we actually can commit them to prayer. And it's for that reason, in part, that we keep our missionaries at Westminster quite limited. In many ways, less is more when you have especially a smaller congregation supporting mission work. It allows us to keep up with them. If you have 50 different mission efforts, it's kind of hard to keep up with all the different prayer needs of all those various things. It also allows us to kind of follow the progress of this mission work and know how to pray for them and what needs that they have. And this is also why we have sought to establish elders at Westminster to serve as liaisons between the church and our various missionaries and mission efforts. Kind of like this morning with the Baileys. It's with joy to bring to you as a congregation an update on what's going on in the Baileys' life, even personally having to do with their son going to Antarctica, but also what's going on with their community in which they're ministering. We heard about their church building this morning and how that's been a great difficulty. They have a lot of different religions that are represented in their community. That's one of the reasons why, in part, we bring these regular updates to the congregation so that we can really be in tune with what's going on and how to pray for them. I remember the last time we gave an update on the Baileys, it was announcement that they particularized. They went from being a mission work, a church plant, into being an actual self-sustaining church that has shepherds overseeing a flock. And that brings us great joy as a congregation. It gives us much to pray for. It, it, it not only fuels us in terms of our financial support of them, but particularly in our prayerful support of them. And this is why also we are grateful whenever our missionaries are on this side of the map. It's great to have them come and to talk with us, kind of like we did with the Mitchells just two weeks ago. We were able to hear straight from their mouth what's going on in their work in France and what is it like to minister in Toulouse and some of the unique textures of ministry that are involved there. So we ought to know our mission work and to be in prayer for them. We ought to also be interested in the welfare of other congregations. 
especially those congregations with which we have an ecclesiastical and formal bond. This is why on the last Lord's Day of each month, in part, that's the reason why we have our prayers directed in a different way than we ordinarily do, where we deliberately set our prayers upon the larger things of the kingdom, praying for those who are laboring in lands where there's persecution, praying for church plants, evangelical works throughout the world, praying that God would remind those who are suffering of the worthiness of the name for which they're suffering, that God would give them boldness in bringing the truth to the nations. It allows us to pray for our whole denomination, those that are involved in MTW, those that are involved in M&A. And particularly, we highlight, as you know, on the last Lord's Day of each month, we highlight a particular church in our presbytery so that we can pray not only for our presbytery, which are those churches that we're ecclesiastically united formally with, but also to highlight a particular church, to pray for their pastors and their elders and their deacons, all of those who are laboring for the kingdom in that midst, that all of the members of those congregations would be utilizing their gifts for the building up of the saints in each one of those. We're united by the blood of Christ United in communion with one another. United for the purpose of the kingdom. We have genuine interest in the mission work. We have genuine interest in church planting. We have genuine interest in other congregations. And you see, that's what Paul's highlighting here. He's highlighting this communion of the saints that is enjoyed among those. And they're not united about things that the Rotary Club would find union over. No, they're united in the same message of the gospel of truth that comes through God's word, the gospel of salvation that's found in Jesus Christ. And this kind of mutual concern and love, this interest that that closes out this greeting like this one in Philippians actually teaches us and helps us to think more biblically in this area. And especially in a hyper-individualistic, religious climate, as we find ourselves these days, we need passages like this. We need passages like this to remind us of the communion of saints in life and in ministry. Well, not only does Paul close out this letter by accenting the communion of the saints, but He also does so by accenting the broadness of God's saving power. Look with me again here at Philippians chapter 4 verse 22 where he says not only all the saints greet you, that would be the congregation of Rome, but he says especially those who are of Caesar's household. Now why in the world did he include that and why is it inspired by the spirit for our good? Well, this Caesar's household would have been most likely the household of Nero, that great hater of Christ's people. Oh, the power of God the Holy Spirit. Look with me at chapter 1, if you would just go back just a moment to Philippians chapter 1 and look with me at verse 12. Philippians chapter 1, look with me at verse 12. But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. 
so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. In 2 Timothy, Paul writes these words, Remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel, for which I suffered trouble as an evildoer, even to the point of chains, but the word of God is not chained. And that's what he's saying here really in Philippians chapter 1, isn't he? The Philippians are sacrificially supporting Paul's mission, even though they are a people that are actually gripped by poverty. And yet they're supporting his ministry. They're united to him in his ministry. And Paul knows that these dear saints might be disappointed at the realization that Paul's in prison. They might be disappointed by that. This man that they've invested the the precious little money that they have in, in order to see sinners converted to the gospel and churches planted and evangelism done, he knows that they could be very disappointed to find out that he's in chains. After all that, he's in chains. But Paul, you see, always wants the church to know that while Paul is in prison, God's word is not in prison. He wants them to know that. That while Paul may be chained, the word of truth is never chained. And he's talking about that in Philippians chapter 1. He's saying even the Roman guard are starting to talk about it. And even others are are building up their confidence because of my chains and are speaking more boldly the word of truth. And what do we find at the close of Philippians? We're finding that, hey, by the way, let me just let you know. Let me tell you how broad-reaching this grace of God is extending so that you will be encouraged, church. There are even those in wicked Nero's household who have been converted. This man who actually lights up Christians as torches so his gardens can have light at night, that Nero, even members of his household have come to faith. Because the word of God's not bound. The grace of God and the scope of his grace and his power are far reaching. And let me tell you, church at Philippi, it's so far reaching, it's found its way up to the very highest, into the very household of Nero. Isn't this just remarkable? Jerome, the ancient historian, a couple of hundred years after this time, does tell us, This is not inspired, but Jerome does write a couple of hundred years later that the wife of Nero became a Christian. Apparently word had made its way over the course of a couple of hundred years. And Jerome writes, this is just one historian, but he writes that Nero's wife became a Christian. Maybe that's the one that that Paul's talking about here. Even Nero's bride. Nevertheless, even if that's not true, Paul is saying in this text of Scripture in Philippians chapter 4, the word of God is not bound, and it's very important that the church know that. There is no one 
that is beyond the reach of God. There is no one that is beyond the reach of grace. There are no limitations to the far-reaching gutters that the gospel will go to save a soul. There is no limitation whatsoever by the power of the Holy Spirit through the word of the gospel. There's no limitations. The word is unbound. I remember Spurgeon once wrote, he says that the word of God's like a lion. And man so often feels like they need to make sure he's caged. Make sure that he's kind of in his place and doesn't disrupt too many things. And we said, no, just let the lion out of the cage. Unbind him and let the word of God do its work by the power of the Spirit. And we see that taking place right here. In Philippians chapter 1, and he's closing out the letter saying, hey, by the way, there's even some in Nero's household that are being regenerated. Oh, how encouraging that must have been to these young Christians, this young Christian church. Even at the very highest reaches of the realms of the empire, God is doing the work of his word. It's remarkable. I want you to stop for just a moment, and I want you to think with me and follow the progression here, because I'm going to throw out a few dates. Jesus is crucified, and 30 years after this, this marginal, persecuted minority sect has converts in the household of the emperor of Rome. 30 years after the crucifixion of Jesus. 197 AD, you go forward just a couple of hundred years, Tertullian will write that there are so many Christians in Rome that it can be said that the city is swarmed with Christians. Quote, We have left nothing to you but the temples of your gods. They are the only places that you can name in your empire where there are not Christians. Tertullian is reporting that only 190, at 197, which is only like 150 years later, there's so many Christians in Rome that it's, they're swarming them. They're swarming the city. 115 years later, about 315 AD, the Christian religion will be made legal for the first time in the Roman Empire. That's not very long. And then less than 75 years later, Christianity becomes the official religion of the Roman Empire. Now, even now, historians and sociologists have and will continue to debate over how in the world a tiny, persecuted minority, marginalized sect can without any means of modern technology that began around 30 AD with only 12 disciples and then a larger circle of 70 around them to being the official religion of the Roman Empire in less than four centuries. They're still debating that today. How in the world can it go from one man with 12 followers 
to only a few hundred years later, less than four centuries, and it's the official religion of the Roman Empire. Paul the Apostle wants to make sure you, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, knows the answer to that question. He declares that it is because the converting power of the gospel through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's how. That's how. It's not some sociological phenomenon. It is through the word of truth going out, letting the lion out of the cage, and the Spirit of God applying the word of truth to the hearts of people. God can convert people even in Nero's household. That's why he ends this way. He wants to leave on the ears or on the eyes of the readers of this letter or the ears of the ones that are hearing it read in their midst. He leaves them on that note. Just consider, dear church, how powerful the word of God is and how it is unbound and unchained, even though I myself am chained. What a note to leave on the hearts of these Christians. What a note to leave on our hearts. Paul wants this news of the unbound word of the gospel left on their ears and our ears. You see, Philippians chapter 4, verses 21 to 23 is more than a greeting. Paul is teaching. He's teaching them and teaching us. Be encouraged, brethren. Be encouraged by the word that is unbound. You would think that it would be impossible, you see, that a member of Nero's household would be affected by the gospel. But in effect, Paul's saying here, you know what? Your God is the God of the impossible. Did you know that? You see, he's leaving a note here of what one might naturally think that's impossible. And yet Paul is sounding the note, here is your God. Nothing is impossible with him. Nothing is impossible. For God is the God of the impossible. His business is the impossible. God's in the impossible business. Well, I am too, pastor, you don't know my heart. You don't know how dark, down, deep in the gutter I am. You could just consider me dead. Well, guess what? God's in the resurrection business. God is the God of resurrection. He's the God of possibility where there is no possibility. He's in the business of taking that which is dead and making it alive. He's that which is is in the pit of impossibility and taking it out into the light. He's in the business of taking Nothing can making it into something. And that's being accented right here, even in the last few verses of Philippians. And he does all of this for the praise of his own glory, for the praise of his own purposes, for the esteem of his name, the fame of God. That's why he does it. That's why he took Israel out of bondage in Egypt all for his own fame. He took a people that were nothing. Just a little Jewish people. And against the nations of Assyria, nations like Egypt, God was sent forth his fame. 
They became trophies of his grace. Brothers and sisters, hear this and hear this well. Friends, hear this well. If I were speaking to millions of people, I would say these words. Hear this well. No one, no, no one is beyond the reach of the invincible power of the word of truth. No one is beyond the invincible power of the Holy Spirit. Whether that be someone in high places or in low places, whether that be somebody who's rich or somebody who's poor, someone who's old or someone who's young, someone who's wearing a suit with cologne or someone who's in the gutter smelling like a rat, God Almighty's power is great enough to reach even the guttermost. No one's beyond his reach. That's the beauty of the gospel, is it not? The free grace of God to sinners, not because of anything they've done to deserve it, but all because of what Christ has done to deserve it. That's why all of those that enter glory do not walk in patting themselves on the back and pleading their righteousness and pleading what they've done to commend themselves unto God. Every single saint says, worthy is that lamb that is sitting on that throne. My whole eternity is wrapped up in who he is, not who I am, what he has done and not what I've done. And that's the message that was going out in Rome, among Roman guards and among Nero's household. And the Spirit of God was applying the truth of that message to sinners. Oh, may our hearts be renewed this morning, brothers and sisters, in the communion of the saints and in the broad saving purposes of God that we find right here in these last few verses. And we are aware that such communion is stirred up in our hearts and we're affected by the saving power of the gospel through the grace of God Almighty. Our message is a message of grace for the world and listen well, the message of grace is for us. We need it. We're recipients of God's grace along with all of the saints for he rescued you when you had nothing to offer And your heart was turned to him by grace. And you have nothing to offer him today. So may our hearts be turned again to his grace again. That's welcome to the Christian life. It's not a one-time isolated act of turning to the Lord and being a recipient of his grace. No, the Christian knows their constant need of the grace of God. Constantly. For by grace we have been saved And it's grace that we continually need. And it's for that reason that Paul ends the whole letter to Christians, saints. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. You still need it. You still need it. The gospel is as much for the Christian as it is the non-Christian. For it speaks forth the need of God's grace and we find that grace in Christ Jesus. And we need that grace, brothers and sisters, until Christ returns in all of his glory. You and I are part of this global mission of God's grace that's going to be fully consummated in the end. And we shall sing in that moment to these words that we're about to sing in a moment. When from earth's wide bounds, from ocean's farthest coast, 
through gates of pearl, streams in the countless host, singing to the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Hallelujah. Indeed, praise the Lord for his life-giving and his life-sustaining grace. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, oh, how we thank you for the, even the ending greeting of this letter that we know was inspired by you for our good and for the church at Philippi's good. And Father, we thank you for declaring to us this important element of the communion that we have with other saints. We thank you, Father, for communicating to us the far stretches, the unboundness of your, of your work and your mercy towards sinners. And that no one is beyond your reach. No one is beyond your grasp. And Father, we are such recipients. For you found each of us in the gutter with nothing to offer you. And you gave us a righteousness that was not our own. That righteousness that was found in Christ Jesus. Oh, Father, we believe. Help our unbelief. Cause us to embrace Christ in him alone and to continue to embrace him. Father, allow our hearts to have said, by grace I've been saved and by grace I'll be brought home. And it is to you that we look for grace this day. We pray it in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ who loved us and gave himself for us. Amen. People of God, now hear the benediction that comes to you from Philippians chapter 4, verse 23. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen.